everyone, and welcome to the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast Series. I'm Sarah Willis, French horn player and passionate podcaster. My guest today is a different kind of superstar. I guess you could say he's the backstage guy, but that's definitely not an adequate description. He famously said, I didn't plan on doing this job, and for that, he's doing very well. He has been president of Deutsche Grammophon since 2015 and is currently very busy celebrating a very important birthday. Deutsche Grammophon is 125 years old. Clemens, I'm so happy to have you here. I hope you don't mind being called a backstage guy. Not at all. I think <laughs> it's, it's lovely that you, well, mentioned we're here to support, we're here to serve, you know, the artists that are in the studio or on stage, and uh, I really love this role. We all need our support teams. These musicians that get up there on stage and do what they do, they all need their support teams. And Deutsche Grammophon has been, for 125 years, has been there for their artists. It's not just a record company. It's a full-time job all around their artists. And tonight, this celebration is really everything that the Yellow Label is all about. Well, I guess, right, it's, uh, it's a wonderful cast and the repertoire ranges from, well, actually, piano solo, that's what the choral fantasy by Beethoven starts like, uh, chamber music, choir, a cappella, um, the big Overture. sound with orchestra. <laughs> so this, this concert has everything that Deutsche Grammophon stands for and also has an international cast of wonderful young musicians and friends. Uh, How on earth did you get everybody here on the same night? How long have you been planning this for? Well, you're from the life business. You, you would know, right? It takes years of years. planning. And uh, it also takes a lot of goodwill on the part of our artists and friends. And they all wanted to be here and celebrate with us and uh, I'm, I'm really happy we made it happen. And it's not just here. Tonight is the start because today, the 6th of December, is really your birthday. That's correct. This is the date where some documents give evidence that Deutsche Grammophon, the label, was fully operational and active and uh, had um, a payroll, these kind of things. They let us know this is the date where the label started, while the technology obviously started a decade earlier. Emil Berliner invented the gramophone in the late 1880s. And it's got funny, the... it's Berliner. I always laugh when I see his name, Emil Berliner. You know, it's like we're here in Berlin, now sure. the company's we're based We're all Berliners, here. right? I know, um, I know. And we need to give credit to his brother Joseph, right? Um, he was more involved in the label part, whereas Emil was the entrepreneur and an inventor. And it was actually quite, quite funny. It was a technology race that was going on at the time. Emil and Joseph, they were up against uh, Edison, right, with the uh, phonograph, with the cylinder. And, well, guess what technology prevailed? <laughs> the, the, the good old vinyl. The and vinyl, it's, it's the amazing. flat record. Yeah, the flat record. And it's, it's really done a full circle, hasn't it? Because these days we're all coming back to the vinyl. Absolutely, it's, uh, absolutely. It's <laughs> so um, have you checked out these, these wonderful vinyls that we cut from the original master tapes? Yes, why didn't you bring them here? Well, actually... <laughs> <laughs> I would like to have had them here in person. 
I'll send you one afterwards. You heard it here first. He'll send me one afterwards. It's on record. Yes, well, we're going to get to the history a little bit later, some more of the history. But just a quick question about the birthday celebrations, because everybody likes a good party. So tonight we have an amazing party in the interval. We've already heard incredible young musicians from your from your Deutsche Grammophon star-studded cast. Bomsori, Raphael, Kian, Andre, and all conducted by your newest signing, Joanna Malwitz. That's right. Um, which is really fantastic in this concert house orchestra. But you are getting into a plane and you're hopping over to Philadelphia for the next birthday party. Correct. But let me just dwell a little bit here in Berlin at, at Concert House. I'm, I'm really happy we got this wonderful group of musicians together. And deliberately, we wanted to celebrate with artists that basically stand for, for the future from past experience. I mean, we've been working with Anna-Sophie for well over 40 years now, with Christian Zimmermann for 50 years, with Maurizio Pollini for roughly 60 years. So I think if we wanted to look ahead and, well, you know, make a wild bet or assumption who are going to be the next artist with whom we are working for the next few decades. I think that's... Those are the ones you have here tonight. That's actually the idea. Yeah, correct. <laughs> and that's only, you know, that we still have another star guest to come in the second half, Bruce Liu. Isn't that funny? We also have two Chopin Prize winners, Rafael Brechatsch and um, of Bruce course. Liu. Of course, yes, of course. Well, DG brings the world together. <laughs> I guess, yeah, we, we're trying our best. And indeed, it's a very international footprint that we're experiencing here tonight with, I think, South Korea, Poland, Austria, and Iran, Italy, Sudtirol, China, and Canada being present on stage in a way. I love it. I, I love all this global, global bringing the world together through music. People say, I mean, music is an incredibly connecting power. And, uh, and tonight we're really seeing that. I think we do need that in these days. Everything is so complex and noisy and actually also frightening, right? When you look at world events and we need that, that refuge, we need the ability to listen, to discern, we need this global, international um, mindset. So I think it embodies, our art form embodies a lot of what we need nowadays. It, absolutely. And it's also important to feel connected in these times and not only feel connected, I'm just, I'm so happy today. I feel like I'm amongst family. I've just been into the dressing rooms and, you know, hugged Bomsori and Kian and, and uh, it's really like a family meeting. This tonight is what it should feel like. And this is exactly. also what it feels to me. And I'm inter- eternally grateful that, uh, yeah, we have this, this family gathering that only happens on... And as I mentioned... You're getting in a plane and you're going to Philadelphia. Yeah, that's the uh, extended the part, of the, the second part, part of the family. Tell us a little bit more about that. That's actually also fascinating because in that concert, the idea is a little bit different. The idea actually came up in a conversation with Yannick Nisesega, who's going to conduct this anniversary concert with his Philadelphians. His fabulous Philadelphians, he Absolutely. calls them. <laughs> They're brilliant. Our idea was to showcase an artist with whom we've just started a collaboration, Maria Duenas, the... 20-year-old violinist, an artist with whom we've worked for well over 20 years, Hélène Grimaud, uh, is going to perform the Ravel Concerto. Then there's going to be a wonderful experiment with Moby, 
Moby has released two orchestral albums by now on, on DG. I with, know, I played on one. Uh, and you, you had a conversation <laughs> with did. Moby, right? Yes, Moby was on the podcast. So he's really very much yeah. into our art form. Yeah. And, uh, he said he was, he's amazed that Deutsche Grammophon will have anything to do with him. Because he says, you know, he's this sort of other type of artist. You know, he's not a big-time soloist or anything. And he said he's just amazed that he's allowed to put his music onto, you know, albums and get the yellow stamp of approval. Well, what's the funny <laughs> thing is, as we are celebrating our anniversary today, DG started as a genre agnostic label, right? Emil and Joseph Berliner and Fred Geisberg, who was the first producer, they produced all sorts of things and they even ventured out to Asia, did recordings in, in India and in China, probably you would call that now world music or something along those lines. And, and there was entertainment music that was recorded. So actually, I think it's, it's important to you know, stay open and versatile as long as the artistic proposition is, is, is credible, is authentic, is organic, and that's definitely the case with Moby and with also other um, icons from adjoining genres with whom we've worked, with Benny Anderson of ABBA or Sting. So that's always a huge inspiration Just and dropping fun. a few small names into the Yeah, mix. let's not get into name dropping here. <laughs> no, that I would, love that it. would fill more the rest more. of our... We like name dropping. <laughs> we like to hear what... I mean, really, the, 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 the cast list of the Yellow Label is truly impressive. And I, I know this because I've been doing your podcast for the last couple of years, and I get to talk to these great people. A lot of them are my friends already, but a lot of them I got to know via the podcasts, and uh, Moby, Moby was one of them. I find it fascinating to talk to musicians from other genres and see how much we actually have in common. And that's why I think the world is grateful to such a label, which has this uh, strong tradition of not only just our wonderful bread and butter, our classical music, but venturing out into these different worlds, doing things with Sting, doing things with Moby. And I did not know, you know, the, the comparison uh, that you just made with the Berliners, the, um, the brothers, that's, that's really incredible. You're right. They were world musicians. Absolutely. And uh, that's it's but funny. Even, but even within our classical repertoire, standard repertoire, core repertoire, whatever you might want to call it, there's so much still to, to discover and to record. And actually, I'm, I'm really, really proud that we also did a little bit of that in the last few years, be it with Yannick, whom we just talked about, the symphonic works by, by Florence Price, or with Lahav Shani, the first symphony by Paul Benheim, or um, Hans Roth with, with Jakob Ruscha in Bamberg, or... We, I played that with, with Jakob. It was like, if everyone was like, well, what do we have to play? What, what, who, what's this piece? Beautiful horn places, Gorgeous. Right? The horns were very happy. Yeah. <laughs> or, 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 you know, Joanna is not the only female conductor with whom we've been working. Mirga has been recording Weinberg for Deutsche Grammophon. And that's also a huge discovery, very much along the lines of, uh, I mean, Mahler was almost forgotten post-war until Lenny and others, uh, you know, revived that incredible repertoire, similar with Shostakovich. So I think there are so many discoveries to be made still. It's nice to hear that because you're not actually talking about things that will go and hit the classic charts. You're putting things into the history of recording music. You know, you're not just out there to say, OK, we need a number one hit you know, Weinberg and Roth, I don't know whether they'll ever make it to the top of classical charts, but at least we're recording them and we have them there for posterity. Well, Sarah has maybe a misconception. These records did really, really well. And this is what we are here about as we, you know, started out by saying we're serving our artists. I'm kind of the backstage guy, right? And uh, I have another 
another 70 backstage guys with me. <laughs> and we want to go strongly after the artist and project that we fervently believe in. Well, somebody just said recently, music distribution has never been easier. Actual music consumption has never been more difficult. And yeah. this is what yeah. actual music consumption to make sure these projects are more difficult. And yeah. this is what yeah. we can bring to the table yeah. to make sure these projects are actually being listened to, being cherished, being loved, being, you know. I think uh, the, the, the tools that also a big company like DG has in, in the streaming world these days, it's not only like, I think maybe um, if you just put out a record of, of Weinberg or something, people, people would think, okay, don't know that, not buying that. But together with the whole visual offer that you can do with these things, you know, the, the digital publicity that goes with it. And you guys are really very active in what, what goes out online. You we know? try and actually don't underestimate the yellow brand. I right? do not underestimate the yellow brand. <laughs> How did it work for you when you were in a record store back then? You know, my the... first horn concertos were with the yellow. <laughs> well, oh that's my totally goodness. all right. It a will cassette. Be do you remember the cassettes? You know, probably most of the people watching won't remember it the It will cassettes. be collector's item again in 20 do years' time. Do you remember <laughs> reeling them together with the pencil? Of you know, when I they do. sort of all came of apart? Yeah, it was a cassette of the most horn concertos. But anyway, so this, this yellow brand actually, uh, it does something to people who care about music, especially classical music. And when there's a new artist, a new work that's being presented under this label, at least in my case, and uh, maybe I'm totally biased by now, but at, le at least in my case, there's always been this curiosity. Okay, this is, this is coming out on DG. Well, I might need to check it out. So you say it was always your curiosity. Actually, this job, there's this great quote from you that you actually didn't plan on doing this job. By no means, right? It Absolutely. Was just... <laughs> when you read about you and you see your publishing, you know, your book uh, was in German, a title I didn't know half the words. It's like really, it's like Rechte. What, what would you call that? Oh, that was uh, my legal thesis. Your legal thesis. I mean, I, a horn player knows nothing about legal <laughs> theses. But you have the musical background of being a clarinet player. So actually you have the best of two worlds. So why did you not plan on doing this and why are you doing it? Actually, I always enjoyed having my professional life in, in, in media separate from my performance, and I still keep performing to a certain extent, which I think is essential to you know stay grounded in our art form and and, and really stay connected. And I've seen pictures of you at the Yellow Lounge with you? your clarinets. Oh my God! I unfortunately um, missed that one. <laughs> what I love most is chamber music because having this conversation on stage, this spontaneity with, with fellow musicians, with friends. I think this is the most beautiful experience a human can, can have. But I haven't, I've always, you know, kept it separate from my media work and from my, my legal stuff. And uh, now it all kind of coincides, which is brilliant, but at the same time, it's also all-consuming, right? Because there's so many topics and subjects that I care about and everything basically uh, coincides in this task that's ahead here and uh, so um, it's intense. But you didn't plan on doing this job, it just sort of happened. It happened. I, I got a call from what you might call um, a headhunter and they inquired whether I'd be interested in having a conversation about uh, DG. Yes, and I sure did. <laughs> and here we are celebrating 125 years. What would you say, as the head of this really amazingly historical, wonderful company, if I may call it that, it sounds, you know, it's not sure. enough label. Sure. What are the biggest challenges for you these days? Well, you need to stay ahead in two areas. 
One is the artistic, aesthetic field. And then there's the strategic, technological distribution task. And often, actually, they also you know, coincide and, and, and merge along the lines of uh, Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. <laughs> so um, we'll take care of the message and develop the message. But also, of course, we need to take care of uh, the mediums and distributions, how to make this message cut through and to find the right balance between preservation of what is great and fantastic about uh, our artists, the repertoire and our genre and innovating in both those areas, that's, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. And my other question I really wanted to ask you today, I have so much, but you know, it's going to be the end of the interval and you're going to have to go back in um, for the second half. An artist like you, I mean, if you just look at the names of the people, you, you mentioned you know, a lot of them, you know, Anne-Sophie Mutter, Polini, Argerich, Barenboim, but someone like Anne-Sophie Mutter, she has lasted in the spotlight and also is an amazing player because that's the number one. If you can't, you still have to be an amazing player. It doesn't matter how great you look, how great you talk into a camera, you still have to play your instrument. And she's lasted for, I mean, she's incredible. She's still going Absolutely. so strong. She looks amazing. How do you cultivate a young artist to, to be like her? How you, how, what is the aim for the future with your young artists? Because, of course, a second Anne-Sophie Mutters, you know, she's one of a kind. I was just going to say, there I mean, is, this is like no, a of course. unique gift in, in music history. But uh, we need and, characters like that. And, and I find today, also as a teacher, I'm finding I'm, I'm hearing a lot of the same. You know, people don't quite dare to go out of the box. They sort of are more careful about what they say, how they look, you know, how they play. Um, mu classical music, I think, needs these real characters, like Vikinga, uh, you know, like Lang Lang. So we do encourage also the artists whom we work with um, to really cultivate their inner voice, right? What, what guides them, what makes them strong, what makes them special, what they care about. And I think it's, it's ever more important to develop that, that uniqueness, if you, if you like. Mm. Um, because um, out there on digital platforms, there are thousands of recordings of the same repertoire, even tens of thousands, probably Moonlight Sonata or works like that are being available like uh, by the millions. Goldberg variations, just Gold to mention, just yeah, to mention one which uh, you're going to have in your third birthday concert. That's right. I, I look forward. Yeah. I, I won't be there in person, sadly. I just came back from Asia, like you did. Um, <laughs> and um, I will be able to, to watch this concert on, on Stage Plus, our newly established um, audiovisual streaming platform, live from Seoul, Bikinger Olofsson with the Goldberg variations. And, and like you say, people... Um, and Vikingur is a prime example of how uh, an artist develops, uh, you know, an inner voice and is on a mission, really. To, He's one of my favorites. Um, win really. all of us over. Vikinger, we love you. We do. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you see? What well, if you said we have another 125 years in front of us? The challenges of the classical music business, we all know. You know, we're all doing our best to get out there, share the word that you know. The mission is that. Classical music is amazing. For me, of course, it's all about the live experience. You cannot replace a live experience in a concert hall, listening to a symphony with lots of other people and having yourself move to tears. So when the digital streaming platform started, of course, our worries as classical musicians were that it was going to stop people coming to our concerts. And it was quite the opposite, it, right? It was exactly the opposite. People 
watched the concerts online and then thought, oh, that's really cool. We'll go there. We'll, we'll buy the albums. We'll, we'll, we'll have this live experience. But then, of course, as a recording label, you have this verse, live versus studio recordings. And is there a special direction that you want to go to? What are the advantages? It's a huge topic, I know. It is a pretty huge topic. But first of all, I think there's so many synergies between live and, and, and recording. And um, we're just scratching the surface here, right? Because... I think we need both as music fans. We need the live experience, but also when we're you know, in solitude or when we you know, crave listening to a certain, certain repertoire. It's amazing. It's now all available at our fingertips. So I think, especially also for people that are not as privileged as we are, we live in the metropolis, Berlin, where fantastic concerts and I mean, well, we're able to attend your concerts with the Berlin Phil. We uh, can go to opera. the State Opera, all the wonderful guest Two orchestras that operas. are in town yeah. and the other opera companies and, and, and ensembles. That's absolutely fantastic. Mm. Like the Rias uh, Chamber Choir that we are experiencing here tonight. All of that is available to us. But just think of people who live in you know, rural areas. Yeah. And I think in this respect, digital media is a huge opportunity also. Well, I grew up in Braunschweig, which also has a vibrant cultural life, but not that kind of life that we have in Berlin or in New York or in London or Paris. And the world from the Metropolitan Opera, from Salzburg Festival, from Bayreuth, that came to me mostly via TV and via Deutsche Grammophon as a child and teenage boy. So for the next 125 years, are you going to take Deutsche Grammophon up to the moon? What's going to happen, do you think? Do you think classical music will survive? Do you think, what, what do you think is going to happen to our world and your recording world? So the crystal ball question. Exactly. Yeah. You're the boss. You're here. I'm taking advantage of that. All right. I mean, first of all, I think we're well advised if we keep doing what we're good at. Always uh, a good idea. Right? Mm -hmm. And for the past 125 years, we've been trying successfully, less successfully, to create the most impressive classical music experiences and bring those to the world via technology. And uh, I don't think anything is going to change in the future about that. Of course, technology, there will be, you know, vast disruptive changes. Um, I think we haven't seen the end of it. And also in terms of you know, artistic propositions, there's still so much to, to discover. I'm not at all worried about the future because this music has been sticking around for centuries now and hasn't lost, it has almost even added fascination, right? How do you feel as a, as a musician about this? It, it's, as you say, the crystal ball question. And uh, I mean, of course, there's this worry that classical music might you know, become less important. But I, I always, when people ask me exactly that question, I, I, I find that in times like, especially now when the world is really so turbulent, I find that that's exactly when people look for beauty. And it was like after 9-11 in New York, the art galleries, the concerts hall, they were never so full as not after, after this terrible event. And, and now with all this, these wars going on in the world, people crave beauty, they crave peace. Absolutely. And that's what something like Wikinger, Olafsson's Goldberg variations can bring to a troubled soul. So I think... Interestingly, I think, if I just, may just add, yes. during the pandemic, we saw an uptick of roughly 10% for classical music consumption. Yes. 
um, yeah, at the expense, too. actually, yeah. of other genres, yeah. um, because people probably were looking uh, for, for of what, exactly what you just said. Um, so I'm not worried about music, but I think we do have to stay on the ball, if stay on the crystal ball, and <laughs> and watch the consumers and watch their uh, what, especially young people are doing and needing, and, um, and and all the different platforms that they're using because they move so fast. Oh my goodness, you know, I finally got the hang of one platform and they've moved on to the next one, you know, and for old people like us, it's tough to keep up, <laughs> but it's a wonderful challenge, and uh, and I'm but sure. staying on the ball is a good cue, yeah. right? Um, ah, staying on the horn. Yeah. Staying uh, on the horn is a good cue. Well, actually, I wanted to thank you for, for being with me today and giving me so great insights. But there's one thing I did want to ask. If Deutsche Grammophone ever decides to send some musicians to the moon, please, can I be the horn player? Oh, wow. Okay, we <laughs> need to talk about artists and repertoire. What repertoire. Like I, mean, I think the most natural would be in space and Stanley Kubrick has done it beautifully. Blue Danube. Good. Starts with a horn solo. Starts with a horn. Good. I think we could have an ensemble of all your artists going up to the moon and, and playing the Blue Danube. Yes, good. Okay, it's a deal. Deal. Everyone heard it here first. I'm going to the moon when Deutsche Grammophon uh, starts taking over space. <laughs> it's on record. It's, it's not on, on shellac, record. though. No. <laughs> good one. <laughs> Chichung. Clemens, thank you so much for taking the time today. And uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to the backstage guy. Thank you, and all I can say is happy birthday, Deutsche Grammophon. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. I'll pass it on to the team and to all our wonderful artists. That's all for today's podcast, which I'm very sad to say is the last in our Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast Series. I've adored podcasting with you all and celebrating this star-studded cast of musicians. I'd like to say... Thank you to my amazing podcast team, Stefan Steigleder. Thank you to my amazing podcast team, Stefan Steigleder and Indus Gupta. Without these two, none of this would have been possible. Thank you, guys. I'm Sarah Willis, and one last time, thank you all for listening. Thank you.